to our text. Uh, Genesis 16 is going to be our text today. And we're going to go through the whole chapter. Um, so I'm not going to read it over at first. I'm just going to read through it as we go. Um, but so far in the story, we learned last week, it was a weird story about the covenant made between God and Abram. And we talked about the fire pod and the torch going through the animals. And it was a little weird to us. But once we, once we understood it, it made a little bit more sense, I think, to some, maybe not to all. Um, but now we come to a story which is just as weird as every other story about Abram, it seems. So here we go. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. All right, so I'm breaking this chapter up into three sections. This is the first section. Um, and at this point in Abram's narrative, we learn that the problem still has persisted. God has promised Abram offspring, more offspring than he could count. Yet we continue to see that Sarai is barren. Thus the problem again persists. How is Abram to have this abundance of children if his wife is barren? Um, then enters Sarai's plan, so to speak. She recognizes she has a servant whose name was Hagar. We learn a few things immediately from the text. The first is that she is a servant of Sarai, such as an individual would serve uh, wealthy women on a daily basis. That was her role. We also learn that she was an Egyptian, which implies that she was one who came out of Egypt when Sarai and Abram were in Egypt. And when uh, Abram tried to pass off Sarai as his sister, as you remember, Pharaoh gave him not only animals, but also gave him servants as well. So it is, Sarai goes to Abram and says that God has prevented her from bearing children. Now immediately we should remember that in the ancient world, progeny was a gift from God. Indeed, throughout Genesis especially, offspring have been considered a blessing. And that's a reminder of us of the status of children in our own world today. Now, because of her barrenness, however, Sarai hatches a plan that Abram should go to Hagar and that through Hagar, Sarai will obtain children. Now, to our ears, such a thing seems rather absurd, doesn't it? But in the context of the ancient Near East, such a practice was actually quite common. Indeed, various texts from different places in the ancient Near East, from different cultures even, show that this is the case. Many nations and nation states had laws which dealt with this kind of a situation where a woman would have her servant bear children on her behalf. Now, some might wonder about this despite it being a fairly common practice. Well, there are a number of reasons why a wife would allow this to occur. First, to not have any offspring in that time period meant that one's name would not continue forward. Thus, those who had many offspring were considered even more blessed. Um, second, the women 
then had a great amount of stress placed upon them because of society to conceive. And because of that, such a surrogate motherhood would be preferred for the barren wife because it meant that she could have some control over the offspring. We see this as Sarai, uh, she held on to the idea that whatever children might come from Abraham and Hagar would be her children as well. In her mind, then, this would be the way for her to have offspring despite being barren herself. So it is in the text thus far we see the practice in order to deal with barrenness. The question is then, what does Abram do? Well, he listens to Sarai's voice. And after ten years of living in the land of Canaan and having no offspring, he marries, he marries Hagar. Going into Hagar um, was a married man would do, and from this union came the conception. Thus, we find a fairly straightforward picture of what occurred. There's no mention of Hagar and what she thought of everything that's going on, but it is likely she would not object. In that culture, it would bring her more status being Abram's wife, even if a second wife, um, and even a surrogate mother of Sarai, rather than being a servant alone. So it is, the events occur with Hagar and Abram, according to the text. But then it happens. Hagar gained esteem because she was able to conceive. Thus, she began to have a little bit of pride over her conception. And this led to her looking with contempt on her mistress. Now, we're not exactly sure what Hagar was doing in this state. Um, It could be simply that she just beamed with pride for the conception, and in that beaming, inadvertently caused contempt. Or it could mean that she actively held contempt for Sarai. In either case, it led to a great jealousy on Sarai's part. Indeed, she goes directly to Abram and says, May the wrong be done to you as it's been done to me. May the Lord judge you as, as it's occurred. Indeed, she feels cheated by the obvious results to come from Abram and Hagar's marriage. This leads Sarai to talk of Hagar as she feels. Hagar is making her feel bad, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and Sarai blames Abram for it. Um, Some scholars actually note that she ends with the almost curse by saying, May the Lord judge between us. She's almost cursing Abram because of all this. So Abram, and as we've noticed, isn't his way, never the one to cause conflict in his own house, at least, per se, simply acquiesces to Sarai. He tells Sarai that Hagar is her servant, and she has the power over her. Such a proclamation basically leads Hagar out to dry. Whatever happens is in Sarai's hands, not Abram's. Sarai then proceeded to treat her harshly. Indeed, the term used to describe Sarai's treatment of Hagar is the same word used to describe the treatment of the Israelites in Egypt. Indeed, the treatment is so harsh that Hagar decides it is better to run away rather than continue on with the punishment. Ultimately, the first scene simply ends horribly, is the point. Now we come to the second scene. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly have I seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. All right, so the second scene details what happens with Hagar. We learn that she is found by the angel of the Lord. This is an interesting statement of, and who the angel of the Lord is, is, is somewhat unknown. Most conclude by way of the angel is described that this is a physical representation of God himself. Since oftentimes the angel speaks with God's authority and even discusses himself as such. Um, And actually after Christ, especially Christian theologians have argued that the angel of the Lord is Jesus who goes and speaks to these individuals. So it is the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Thus, we understand that she's actually going south back to Egypt in order to escape Sarai. Just as with the case of God in the garden, the angel of the Lord speaks Hagar's name and then asks where she came from and where she's going. This is reminiscent of Adam and Eve and God asking where they are. Like then, this does not mean that God is unaware of the circumstances. Indeed, we notice that he already accurately calls her by name, Hagar, and she even says um, the, the title, the servant of Sarai. Now, Hagar's response is quite simple. She is running away from Sarai. We notice she does not at all state why she was running away, but simply fleeing. Her response to the question is very different than Adam and Eve, and different also from Cain when asked the question about Abel. Uh, she answers honestly. She is a runaway slave. Likewise, the fact that she says fleeing or running like this implies that she has good reason to run from her mistress. Then we come to a curious point, and that is how the angel tells her to return to her mistress and submit to her. Now, this might be different than what we are used to hearing. Is God really calling her to go back and and be treated, mistreated, and suffer? Well, the answer is yes. Not only is she to go back, but it also reaffirms her status as a slave when she is to go back to her mistress. But even with the command for obedience comes the promise. God will multiply her offspring. The promise is greatly reminiscent of two things. The first is the language is uh, the same as describing the childbearing curse in Genesis 3. Interestingly enough, from the pain of childbearing comes great blessing of offspring. Thus, the affliction of Hagar will also bring about the blessing of a multitude of offspring. Um, The reality of this leads to an oracle concerning the son which shall be born to her. In the oracle, God informs her that the name of her son will be Ishmael. We notice immediately that the name, uh, the term El, is in there, which means God is used. It further recognizes God has heard, or as the text says, God has heard your affliction. Ishmael is then described. He will be a donkey of a man. That is, he will live in the wilderness, living outside the norms of society. As such, this will lead to enmity between Ishmael and others, that he will dwell against all his kinsmen, recognizing his wandering lifestyle, and will conflict with those who dwell in more permanent settings. The conclusion of the scene deals with Hagar's response. She is the first person in the Bible to give a name to God. And in this sense, it is calling him the God who looks after me, or God looks after her. She further reflects on this by recognizing that he has watched over her despite all of her affliction. 
In the end, she trusts that God will continue to watch over her as she calls the place Beer Laha Roy, which means the, wa- the, the well of the one who sees me. All right, now we come to the third and final scene, and it's only the last two verses. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The final scene ends the story. We find that Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael, thus fulfilling the divine oracle concerning Hagar and Abram's son. The chapter concludes by giving the age of Abram at the birth of his firstborn son. What is interesting to consider in this final scene is how absent Sarai is. Despite it being her scheme to win children for herself, in the end, the text only describes the son as being uh, belonging to Abram. Um, and that's how it all concludes. Sarai started it, but Sarai is certainly not in the end. All right, so the main point. The main point of this text is to detail the scheme by Sarai in order to bring about the promised offspring of God. Despite some of the promise being fulfilled, that is the land aspect, they've been living in the land for 10 years, Sarai tries to use human means to bring about the promise of offspring by giving Abram her servant Hagar. Abram accepts, but it leads to division, affliction, and sorrow, especially for Hagar. Once conception happens, Sarai gets jealous, abuses Hagar, and as such, Hagar runs away. There she encounters God, who watches over the afflicted and even makes a promise to Hagar despite her affliction under Sarai. Hagar, recognizing God has watched over her, returns and bears Ishmael, the first son of Abram. At this point in Abram's story, we have to wonder, is this the child who was promised? Unfortunately, we have to wait for that answer. So a few application points. The first one is one that, you know what, I don't think 50 years ago anyone would have ever thought would be an application point. On polygamy. Who expected that one? Well, this seems necessary to talk about. Sometimes we can assume that the biblical writers were all right with what transpires simply because they write about what happened. Um, Indeed, even in today's text, there's actually no comment about what occurs between Sarai, Hagar, and Abram that would suggest in the text that what occurred was bad. Um, No little side note that says, this was bad, by the way. Um, But that would be missing something in the text itself. If we give a close look to the text, we actually see in the scene a scene which we have seen before. That is, it is almost identical to what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And here, let me show you. Um, oh, wow. It decided to delete something for me. All right. For the first one is, can you go ahead and do that for me, Betts? The first one. Keep going. Click. Click. For me. All right. So the first is that Abram obeys his wife, uh, that is, listens to his wife. The same thing happens in Genesis 3. Um, Adam listens to his wife, Eve. Same terminology. This leads to the second one. And that is that the terminology is almost the same. Furthermore, here we find the woman, Sarai, took Hagar and gave her to her husband, Abram. In Genesis, we find the woman, Eve, took fruit and gave it to her husband, Adam. The third 
In this instance, Abram accepts and does, in fact, take Hagar to be his wife. Adam also accepts and takes the fruit. Fourth, here Sarai points her finger at Abram, faulting him because of her misfortune. In Genesis, we find both Adam and Eve doing the same exact thing, pointing their finger at someone else once the deed is done. Now to quote Berg, who in one of my uh, uh, commentators says, this leads to the conclusion, by employing quite similar formulations and an identical sequence of events in Genesis 3.6b and 16.3-4a, the author makes it clear that for him, both narratives describe comparable events, that they are both accounts of the fall. So before we assume that the text is allowing certain events to take place as though they are right and good, it is good to consider that the scriptures never speak well of polygamy. Likewise, before anyone goes out and starts marrying other people, the scriptures are quite clear of one husband and one wife as the ultimate definition of marriage. While societal norms in which procreation was a majority factor for polygamous relationships, this does not mean that the text supports such societal norms. And instead, we find it more often frowned upon in the text as we see here. Not only do we have this as evidence for this fact, but also how this same concept happened previously with Abram and Sarai in Egypt. There, Abram did not trust the Lord, which led him to act out of a human solution to the problem. Just as here, Sarai does not trust in the Lord, which leads to her trying to find a human solution to the problem. Ultimately, it showed weakness rather than strength, as well as led to serious problems for Haggai, uh, Hagar, Sarai, and Abram. Thus, the text itself speaks against what occurred in this narrative, and ultimately, when we look at the broader scope of the scriptures, despite there being those who did have polygamous relationships, the way the scriptures speak of such relationships, it leads to more negative and damaging events rather than positive ones. Also, if we take the account into uh, the New Testament, for example, and how in Titus and 1 Timothy, leaders of the church are to be husbands of one wife, and how Christ reaffirms the statement in Genesis that the husband and wife become one flesh, one husband, one wife, then it becomes even more apparent that the goal of marriage is to have one husband and one wife. Now, I understand that there are going to be those who think, why on earth did you spend this much time talking about this? Well, the answer is that in our own society, polygamy is on the rise. There are more individuals who believe that it is all right for such relationships to exist and freely practice them. Now that marriage equality has occurred, it will lead to more and more different kinds of marriages and what that looks like. Thus, the argument, they will say, is, well, if these four people love each other, then why not allow them all to get married to one another? That's the argument. Thus, our responsibility is to not only have a critique of that, but also to have a response to the culture. Likewise, in our culture, there are television shows which portray Christians who read this text and then form the belief that it is all right to allow such relationships to exist. That is, they honestly believe we want to go back to a societal norm where the only goal for women is to procreate. If you don't believe me, one of the more well-known television shows is called The Handmaid's Tale, 
which deals with this very issue. And it has won multiple awards. Um, basically, they actually believe that the men take over and then they just start having all these relationships like this because the text says that it's okay. I have critiqued this already with my friends <laughs> at work. So don't worry, I am on the defensive. Um, anyway, so because of all this, it seemed appropriate culturally to spend some time on the issue and to look at it as best as we can, as well as to show the response to such beliefs that would say that polygamy is an acceptable practice. I know many of you, again, will hear this and think, what on earth kind of culture are we living in when such a thing is becoming slowly the norm? I digress. It is the reality in which we live in. I'm just one of many, so sorry. It is the way we live in. All right, but that leads to our second point. It could be easy for us to conclude on that whole thing, but there is something to consider with human means. Sarai was attempting to use her own means, her own ideas, in order to bring about the blessings God had promised to Abram and Sarai as well. By her own wit and her own wisdom, she tried to bring events about which were outside of the will of God. Now, I think that this aspect of the story is interesting because it reminds me of so much of ourselves. It is very easy for us to think that we know better or we are able to bring about better results by human means. All the while, God is there waiting for us just to step aside, to trust in him, and to be faithful to what he has simply called us to do. We are a people who tend to believe that the ends justify the means. If the result is going to be good, then who cares how we got there? Now, the church has been infiltrated with such a logic for a long time. We've willingly traded in many of our disciplines and our teachings for the sake of trying to be more relevant to the world around us. In doing so, we have the result of getting more people into the church and into our congregations. It's true. Yet the cost is often a disconnect with the scriptures and with how and what we are called to be in the world. This concept of the end justifying the means, while interesting, is not biblical. And said, so this is actually a philosophical concept known as utilitarianism. I know that's a big word, but let me try to explain. The concept says that utility is the most important goal for humanity. What is utility? Well, it can be defined by anything. It could be human happiness, or it could be human freedom, or it could be X, Y, and Z. Thus, the goal is what is important. How we get to that goal, not so important, because in the end, we've reached our goal regardless of the means. In Christianity, however, it is different. Our goal is not some utility, but the glory of God. The way in which we bring the most glory to God is through obedience to God, living according to his will. Obedience, as we know, does not always lead to happiness, nor does it always lead to freedom. Sometimes it leads to unhappiness, suffering, and affliction. Sometimes obedience leads to miserable circumstances. Sometimes doing good for the glory of God does not result in good results by worldly standards. For example, let's say that you are at work and your boss asks you to do something unethical. Maybe he asks you to lie, cheat, or steal for some reason. He tells you that if you do, you can keep your job. But if you don't, then you will lose your job. What do you do? Well, the ethical decision 
is to not lie, cheat, or steal. This is the good and right choice because we know that lying, cheating, and stealing go against what glorifies God. Thus, in order to do what you know is good and right, you will end up losing. Thus, doing what is good would, under this situation, lead to not something good happening to you, per se. But if the goal is not what is our happiness, or us receiving good in return, per se, but instead to glorify God, then the result won't necessarily matter in this situation, will it? All that matters is the glory of God. And even if you should suffer... It is better to suffer and lose doing good rather than gaining by doing something which goes against God. When we come to Christ, we recognize our dependence upon him in all manners of life. As such, when we come to Christ, we no longer seek to live by our own human means, but by God and his glory. Thus, we should refrain from only seeking our own thoughts as the means, but trust in God to reform our hearts, minds, souls, and strength in order to glorify him. When we seek to do this, and when we seek to discipline us ourselves to help us do this, then we will find happiness and joy in all things because we are seeking him in all things. Thus, we must continue to ask in our lives, what would bring the most glory to God by seeking his will? Sometimes it will come to us rather easily. Other times, however, it can take a long time of prayer in reasoning with others in the scriptures and reflecting on who God is in order for us to understand what his will is. But that is the wonderful thing about our God. He is not silent. And he has given us himself, the scriptures, each other, and our own reason in order to understand what his will is and what would bring about the most glory for him in our lives. Thus, we do not need to depend only on our own means, but we can depend on him and his spirit. Now, there is one thing to consider in this. While it is true we do not seek simply human means when we come to Christ, there is redemption for when we do fail. In the story with Sarai, Hagar, and Abram, it was human beings bringing blessings by human means. But while this is a mistake on their part for not being obedient and faithful to trust in the promise of God, it does not mean it was an unredeemable circumstance. Instead, God did redeem it through Ishmael and through the promise. He protected them even though they made poor choices. This doesn't justify us to make bad choices. Instead, it should urge us to trust in God rather than our own designs, knowing that he is worthy to be followed and to trust in his grace and mercy despite our failures. Indeed, our God is a merciful God, and there is no greater proof that he will turn even our mistakes into gold than the fall itself. For through the fall came the necessity of the Son, and through the suffering and affliction of the Son, the destruction of the Son by human means, came our redemption. But we are still to seek obedience, knowing that even if we should make the wrong choice, he is there to carry us back on his shoulders." Now, the final point that I got from all this text, um, something else we notice from the text, is how God is one who takes care of Hagar despite her afflictions. It is interesting for us to consider Hagar. She seems to almost be a footnote in the grand scheme of the story of the scriptures. Yet she is also an important person to consider as God does promise her the same promise he made to Abram and does take care of her despite her many afflictions. As mentioned previously, 
the way that the text describes her afflictions is similar to that found for the children of Israel while in Egypt. And just like the children of Israel, while they went through their afflictions, in the end, God blessed them with his presence. So with Hagar, God blesses her with offspring. I think the important point we want to learn from this is that God is the God of the afflicted. He does not ignore the cries of those in sorrow, but does hear and does care. In fact, he cares so much about the afflicted that he sent his son to die on the cross for those who were under the greatest of afflictions, which is sin and death. Granted, this does not mean that afflictions of all kinds cease, do they? We can even learn from Hagar that she must return to her mistress and continue to be afflicted. Does this make God evil? Does it mean that he doesn't care about us because he said to Hagar, go back and be afflicted? I would argue no. Instead, it recognizes the same thing about Pharaoh in Egypt, that God allows individuals freedom of choice, freedom of will. And that ultimately, when we allow that freedom to become corrupted, we will experience afflictions because of it. This does not justify them. Far from it. We know God is a vengeful God against evil. In Romans 12, we remember the words of Paul, one who suffered greatly for Christ. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give though to, though, to what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here Paul reminds us that the possibility of finding affliction through others is the reality which we face. Instead of returning that affliction, however, we are called to the higher ideal of love. Will that mean we receive scars or problems? Or will it be easy? I would say no. But then neither did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For just as his obedience led him to the cross, so our obedience to God may cause us to find afflictions along the way. But if we are wise, and if we seek first and foremost the glory of God, then like those who have come before us, we can overcome the world and its afflictions through the strength which Christ gives to us. In fact, when we consider other places in the scriptures which deal with receiving evil, we learn that they hold the same view as we find in Genesis. For Hagar was in affliction, but in her obedience she found a blessing. Consider what we read in 1 Peter 3.9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Indeed, right after this, Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
and again in Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as, as Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. For those in the first century, when they suffered, they recognized it as joining in the suffering of Christ. This does not mean that they thought that Christ's suffering was unnecessary or incomplete. Instead, they recognized that if they were in Christ and Christ suffered, then any suffering that they experienced would be sharing in the same suffering as Christ. We are the same. If we should suffer, then let it be for obedience to Christ rather than disobedience. If we should suffer, then let us suffer remembering the very last words we read from Peter, that we would entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What is good? That which glorifies God. Is this easy to hear? Is it easy to hear that Hagar was called back to affliction? Of course not. But we also remember that the affliction came with a promise. And as such, we who are in Christ, who are obedient in what we are called to do, are also given a promise. Even these passages, there is a recognition of a reward for for the faithful. Now, what does that reward look like? Will it come here and now or in the future? In this life or the next? Is it even possible that our suffering itself is a blessing? Since in the same way we are drawn to Christ. All of the above in some ways. Yet the point of this is not to speculate on such things. Instead, it is to encourage you to be bold for the sake of Christ, to stand firm on the promise of hope which is given to those who are in Christ, to be spiritually disciplined, seeking the glory of God through faithfulness to what God has called of us in our time and place, seeking the strength of Christ in our afflictions. It's also to remember Hagar. For in Hagar, we find the first person in the scriptures to be heard in her unjust affliction. And God does hear her, and he hears all in their unjust affliction to this day. Thus, we too should expect to be heard, and we too should hear others in their unjust affliction, and seek justice here as well as to walk with those who are in affliction, weeping with those who weep. Indeed, as Micah 6.8 declares, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And when it comes to community, Paul says, If one member suffers, all suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Unfortunately, as we live in this world, we will continue to live in a place where sin abounds, and as such, where affliction occurs. Let us not lose hope. Though but it let us be emboldened by our God to stand firm on the promises to us, remembering the words of Christ, that blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And remembering also that God uses us to right the wrongs of affliction. And in this way, we can bring glory to God in our society at large and with each other in this congregation together. 
I know we're getting over. I will end this rather quickly. Sorry. A lot to go over today. A lot. <laughs> um, but still, in this, I do think that we see the gospel of Jesus. Um, not so much in regards to origins, but to go over it, of course, again, because we always need to hear it. Each one of us is created in the image of God. Every single human being is created in the image of God. And therefore, every single one of us has worth, has dignity, has sanctity to life. And that includes everyone here. Now, in that time frame, and when we read about these people who lived in the societal norms where women had such low status, it seems, um, the truth is, is that even they were creating an image of God and they should have known better. Today, we do know a little bit better, don't we, thankfully. Um, and it's important for us to always remember, though, that it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. In the end, you bear the image of God. And it's awesome and it's wonderful. The problem, however, is with the fall, which is what we see today in today's sex. And how this very scene, it seems, looks exactly like what we find in Genesis 3, where these people follow the same schematic of falling into temptation and then into sin, and then ultimately into disobeying the will of God. And when they do that, judgment comes. That's how judgment arrives, is when the fall takes place within each of us. And we deserve judgment. But what do we learn from this text too? That God is a merciful God. And even though the mistakes were made by all three of these individuals, God can still even make a blessing and a promise out of the darkness. Just as we talked about in our story with the children. God is the light of the world. And even though the world may get very, very dark, the light of Christ just gets brighter and brighter. So ultimately we find redemption even here. And ultimately, we even find a little bit of glorification of the promise that is to come, how they are to have descendants untold amounts. Well, we're going to have promises and joys of untold amounts when we get there. We're in a dark world now, but the light of Jesus Christ, it's a light that's unending. And we just begin to experience it now. So praise God for all that he has done. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you have done and all that you have shown us in today in the word. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to renew our hearts, mind, soul, and our strength to be honoring and glorifying to you. And that we would seek you first and foremost. And that we would seek to obey you, to trust in you. To not fall sway to the temptation to sin the temptation to follow after our own means, but to trust you and to do good according to what you have called us. We thank you, Lord, because you are a God who redeems us. And even though we should make mistakes, you carry us on your shoulders. We ask that you would continue to do so and that your light would shine greatly in each one of us as we go into the world today. We thank you in your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn. Come